today, as we kind of come to the end of the year, we're going to take a step back and just think about some of the really basic aspects of what it means to be the church. And in light of what it means to be the church, how we are to act as the people of God. And so I want to start off by talking about this word church. And if you've been here for any period of time, you know we often say we don't go to church. We are the church. We call this not the church service, but the church gathering. And there's a very specific reason for that. The original word in Greek used to describe the church was this word ekklesia. And its original uh, sort of notion was that of uh, people who were being called out of a town to gather together. But as it became used to describe what was happening to the people who responded to Jesus, a new notion came to be developed. And that was a called out people. So that same idea, called out people gathered together to God. And so when we talk about the church, it's, it's really important for us to understand that the church is not primarily a place that we go. It's not primarily a building that we go to. It's not even primarily a time that we meet together. It is primarily a people who has been called out of the world by the grace of Jesus to become part of his kingdom, who have been transformed by the power of the gospel. And so I think as we continue to wrestle through what it means to be the church, the next question we have to ask is if the church is primary, primarily a people, what is it about these people that is so different? And, and into this, I think we need to take a step uh, in the direction of speaking about what, it, what a Christian identity is. What does it actually mean to be part of the kingdom of God? And, and so we've been going through the book of Matthew together. And as we've done so, we've noted, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus, as he calls these followers to himself, is not primarily concerned about what they do, but primarily concerned about who they are. But when we start to think about what this looks like in our culture, almost the opposite is true, because our, our culture isn't primarily concerned about who we are. In fact, our, our culture primarily defines us by what we do. Think about it for a second. If you were to put out an ad describing yourself, what sorts of things might you put in it? If it was me, I would probably put something like, uh, you know, soon-to-be father, pastor, things like that. Those are all sort of things that I do, functions that I have. If you introduce yourself to someone, what's sort of the first things that they ask you about? What, what do you do? And so, so much of who we are tends to be boiled down simply into what we do, but the Bible has a different vision for us. The Bible actually claims that the opposite is true, that we are not primarily doing people, but being people. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, we see this explicitly. God creates all of the world. He creates all of the universe. At the very pinnacle, on the sixth day, he creates Adam and Eve, man and woman. And what does he say? If you're familiar with the story, you know he says, this is very good. You are very good. Adam and Eve had not done a single thing. They had simply come into existence. Their goodness was not at all based on anything they had done, but on God's word and God's work. It was God's work that defined who they were. A little bit later in the book of Genesis, we see this person named Abram has this interaction with God. And God says, Abram, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to change it to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And Abraham starts kind of chuckling to himself. Why? Because he's like 90 years old and he doesn't have any kids. And yet God says, no, you are going to be a father of many nations. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that that ends up being true. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And out of Jacob comes the nation of Israel. And then Abraham follows and has several other sons down the road. And those all become nations of their own in the Middle East. Here's a problem. When we start to think about ourselves primarily as doing people rather than being people, we start to think about what it means to be a Christian based on these little functionary things that we do. So a Christian is someone who goes to church. A Christian is someone who daily reads their Bible or prays. A Christian is someone who is moral, right? Doesn't smoke, drink, and chew or go with girls who do, as the old adage is. Um, <laughs> 
But that's problematic because when we get into that mindset, we can start to compartmentalize our lives. We can start to siphon off parts of what it means to be a Christian. So we, we start to think about our religious lives as a separate piece of the rest of our lives. You know, we go to church on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half. Maybe we're part of a community group for two hours, and that's kind of our religious time. And the problem with that is that being part of the church is not something we can compartmentalize. It's part of a transformed identity that takes place when we choose to follow Jesus. And when we start to deal in these terms, uh, it actually changes the way we live in some significant ways. There's a bit of progression that happens in how we daily interact with God. First thing that happens is when we think of ourselves as primarily doing rather than being people, we start to develop a belief that it's the things that I do or do not do that earn God's approval. And so you might think, man, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Again, sort of that I don't smoke, drink, and chew and go with girls that do uh, mentality, right? I, I do good things. Or maybe you think about it in terms of what you don't do. I don't do bad things. I'm a generally good person. God is probably pretty happy with me. I thought about this in terms of parenting because we're, like I said, about to become parents. How this works itself out. Because maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't know about this whole Christianity thing, uh, but you might be a parent. And, and if you're a parent, you can correct me because I'm not a parent yet, but I get the impression that there is a lot of people who have opinions about how to raise kids. Is that true? Okay, I'm getting, the <laughs> getting some chuckles. I know I've been that person. Uh, you know, I probably looked at you and kind of like, why didn't you get your kids under control? <laughs> but here's the reality is, is parenting is this really wonderful example of how this works out. And so we start to look at how we can best parent by the things that we do, right? And we start to make strategies. I'm not going to do this, right? So, you know, it's really bad to like let your kids cry it out, or it's really good to let your kids cry it out. And you start to form these strategies and think, man, if I only do these things, I'm going to be a great, successful parent. Okay, so that happens. But what ends up happening is, is as we kind of go through the stage where we start to think about things primarily and what we do and do not do as give approval to God or make us a good person or kind of get us to that goal of being a good parent, it leads to self-righteous comparison because you start to look around you and you want to see how you're doing. And so you look at those people. Well, you know, they don't show up regularly for community group. They don't bring good food or, you know, to bring it down to those parenting terms, look at their kids. They're a mess. They obviously haven't figured it out. And from there, what it leads to is this development of pride. You start to get a savior complex and you start to think, man, if everyone was like me, the world would be a better place. Now, I have definitely arrived there in many moments, and then I got married, and I hit those points, and my wife daily reminds me that if the world was like me, it would actually be a really terrible place. <laughs> There's only room for one Andrew, and, uh, and that's uh, God's grace to the rest of the world. So. <laughs> but here's what ultimately happens. When we put ourselves to the Savior complex, eventually something doesn't work out the way that we had planned it to. And I, I have many friends who are parents uh, who are older than I, parents of kids my, my own age. Uh, and, and what's interesting that happens in the parenting world is it doesn't matter how hard you try, there is oftentimes some kids who just don't turn out the way that you thought they would. You know, your Christian family and your kids walk away from the faith. You try and teach them really good morals, and yet they make those mistakes. The same thing happens with all aspects of life. You think you're doing really well, and you find out that someone's just killing it a lot better than you. And in this moment, it leads to utter despair. 
You start to blame yourself. How could this have gone wrong? What did I do wrong? See, this is the problem with placing ourselves primarily as doing creatures instead of being creatures because we start to rely on our work. But the Bible teaches it's not our work that we rely on. It's Jesus' work. It's what he defines us as. And so the Bible invites us, in essence, to live not as doing creatures, but as being creatures. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn them to 2 Corinthians. We're going to jump in here just in chapter 5, just for a moment. But the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' earliest followers, writes to an early church in the, the city of Corinth, and, and he actually starts to unpack for them the reality of this living out of your identity. And he, he tells them this in chapter 5, verse 16. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We, we regard him thus no longer. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, we used to look at people based on what they did. He says, no longer do we do that. It continues on in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What Paul is saying there is when we come to know Jesus, something changes. And it's not primarily what we do, although that should eventually change. It's who we are. It's God coming to Abraham and saying, you're going to be the father of many nations. It's God speaking over Adam and Eve and saying, you are good. Those things aren't based on anything that we do or they did, but on who God is and what he has done. So what does this new creation identity actually mean for us? Well, this is something we talk about a lot as part of West Village. Um, if you, if you uh, have your Bibles, I invite you to flip them over. We're going to jump through a few passages today uh, to the book of Matthew. And uh, yes, we will touch a little bit of Matthew today. Uh, but there's this part in Matthew, the very end. It's called the Great Commission commonly. And Jesus, what's happened? Jesus has died. He's risen to, from the dead. He's invited his disciples to meet with him and before he ascends to heaven to be with the Father. And, and he gives them kind of their marching orders. And this is what he says to them, starting in verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. In that moment, what Jesus is saying is, I... I am God. I am the king. I am the one who gets to define who you are and in light of what I've done, how then you ought to live. And then he goes on and says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." And so Jesus commands all of his followers to go out and make disciples, followers of Jesus. And then he invites them to baptize them. Now, if you've been part of our church for any period of time, you know that baptism for us isn't just sort of some random ritual that we throw out at people. This is a pretty significant symbolic act. Because what happens is when you go under the water, that's a picture of death. Your death to your old self. And when you're raised up, that is actually not just simply a picture of, hey, I've invited Jesus into my heart. That's a picture of the transformed identity that you have. That's saying your old self is dead and this new person has come out. But we don't just simply baptize people and, and say, okay, it's done. We actually baptize them and proclaim what this new identity is. We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We baptize them into the name and the essence of God. And it's really easy for us to just leave it there. Say, okay, cool. You know, now you're a Christian. Now you're part of the church. Now you've made it. But we need to actually start to think through what it means to be a changed person. What it means to have a new name, a new identity based on who God is. And so for the next few minutes, we're going to unpack this a little bit together. The first Part of God's name that we are, are baptized in is the name of the Father. The name of the Father. Uh, I don't know how many of you have really thought through what that means, but 
it, it seems to me that as we look at the early church, they encap- encapsulated this new identity in all its forms. And so uh, for the rest of this, uh, this, uh, this uh, sermon this morning, I'm going to invite you to jump over to Acts chapter 2. As I said, we are jumping around today. Uh, what's happened so far in Acts is kind of similar to Matthew's gospel. Beginning of Acts starts off with Jesus calling his disciples to him, giving them their marching orders. Very similar to, to what Matthew writes. Jesus says to them, I'm sending you out to go and make disciples. But he says, bear witness about who I am and what I've done in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So basically your local region, kind of your, it'd be kind of like your city, your province, your like Western Canada, and then all the rest of the world. But he tells them to wait. He says, wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. And so that's what they do. And a few weeks later, they're gathered together in this upper room, about 120 of them. And the whole city is packed full of people coming from all the known world to worship there. People who had been influenced by Judaism, people who were scattered Jews. And they all spoke different languages, but they all came for the purpose of this religious festival. And it's at this very moment, the Spirit of God actually descends upon these disciples and says it looks like tongues of fire and then they start going out and they, they start sharing this good news about who Jesus is and what he's done. What's so interesting though is that the Spirit actually empowers them to speak in languages that they don't even know. So every single person hears them. Now, of course, there's a few rowdies in there who think, man, these guys are totally drunk. They've been partying hard. It's a holiday. We know what's up. And Peter, one of Jesus's closest followers, stands up and says, no, this is not what's happening at all. And he tells them the good news of what Jesus has done and invites them to respond, invites them to become a new creation people. And says that 3,000 people were added to their number that day. And then the Bible goes on to describe how these people started to work out what it actually meant to be new creations. And so Luke summarizes, the author of Acts summarizes this for us in chapter 2, verse 42, and we're going to read through to verse 47. It says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, the people of the early church had experienced Jesus. They had understood that they had a new identity. And they started to live that out in supernatural ways. And it wasn't primarily about what they did, but primarily about who they were, which then, of course, affected what they did. First thing I want to draw out for us is this word fellowship. Fellowship. It says that they, uh, they daily devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and prayers. That word fellowship is the idea of actually spending time together. When we call God Father, uh, there's an implicit reality in what we're saying. We're actually talking about the church as the family of God we recognize that in this new creation reality, it it primarily takes place because God has now adopted us as sons and daughters, which makes us brothers and sisters part of his family. And so to call God father is not simply to talk about God, but it also tells us something about us. It tells us that we are to be a family. When we talk about family, there's certain things that happen in a healthy family. One of them is spending time together, is fellowship. It says that a little bit later that uh, they daily ate together, that they shared things in common. And I don't know about what your family is like. I don't know what your picture of the ideal family is. But when I think of family, I think of people who show up in times of need, who work together to provide for each other's needs, who daily spend time together, who are involved in life together. There's this idea that comes around every so often in the church world that being a Christian is primarily 
a unilateral relationship with me and God. It's this vertical thing. It's, I've had this experience of God and God and me are tight. Here's the problem with that is that God didn't just save you. God doesn't want to just save you. He, he actually loved the world. And the Bible is clear that you're not just saved from sin, but you're saved into a family. And to fully understand what that looks like, it means you actually have to regularly participate in the life of the family together. It's really easy to talk about living out the life of the family when you never see your family, when you never spend time with them, when you never have to work through things together with them. But we see here in Acts that the complete opposite happened, that these people actually drew in closer. It says that they went to the temple together. And the temple wasn't just a place of religious practice. The temple was actually the centerpiece of their city. It was where business happened. It was where culture was formed. In the public sphere, they were together. They met in homes together. So in the private sphere, they were together. They ate together. They learned together. They prayed together. This is the reason that we talk so much about community groups. Community groups are actually a means that we, as a church family, get to live out our identity as a children of God together, as a family of God. I think there's two particular things that understand our family identity speak to in our culture. For some of you here today, you have a distorted picture of family. You have family that is dysfunctional. Uh, probably all of us, to some extent, have families that are dysfunctional. I love both sides of my family, and they're both dysfunctional. And someday, our kids will probably look at our family and say, we were dysfunctional too. Uh, but, but some of us have truly horrific familial experiences. You can't get in the room with your siblings because you can't stand them. You don't speak to your parents anymore because of deep hurt that has been put in your life. The beautiful thing about this picture of family is when the church starts to live out the life of the church, when the church starts to live out the life of the family together, it's an invitation to us to understand what God had intended. You see, the family, this very idea of marriage, this picture of a man and woman so different but being joined as one is actually a reflection of God himself. God is the three in one, three persons, one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we know from the Bible the interconnectivity, the love, the cherishment, the way that they work in sync yet in different ways. Marriage is like that. And family is to be an extension of that. And so how much more when we as a church start to live out the life of the family should that be the case? I think the second thing that living out the life of the family well does is it, it speaks to those of us who have a, a pretty distorted picture of father. Some of you are here today and your fathers have not been good fathers. They have been abusive or neglectful. You might be a young man who could never, never live up to your father's expectations. You might be a, a woman who could never get your dad's attention. The beautiful thing is when the church lives out the life of the church, we don't just simply reflect this loving family, but we actually reflect our father. We start to give people a picture of what he is like. We are attentive when our earthly fathers are neglectful. We are lavish in love when our earthly fathers are frugal in it. We are supportive even when our earthly fathers are not. And we're restorative even if our earthly fathers are abusive. And so in essence, we are called to be a display and declare people. We're called to live in such a way that it gives a picture of what Jesus is like. And that's exactly what he says to us. Again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to John chapter 13. John uh, records Jesus talking to his disciples and he says this in 30, verse 34. 
He says, a new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And listen to this. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying, the way that you live reflects on who I am. If you understand who I am, if you've experienced who I am, you are a different person. And when you start to live out of that identity, other people get to experience me. So I want to ask us this question. For those of you who are part of a community group, what would it look like for us to continually grow in this love, in this family, in this fellowship? There are always places that we need to grow and improve, always places that God's still working. And our community groups are a wonderful instrument that he does that through. And so as we kind of reflect on the end of the year, I want to challenge those of you who are part of communities to ask, does our group actually reflect this family mentality? Are we involved daily, not just like twice a week where we see each other on a Sunday and then once again on a, a Thursday night or a Tuesday night or whichever day your community group works, but are we actually invested and involved as family in each other's lives? Do we know the places of weakness that we can encourage each other? Do we know the places of need where we can support and care for each other? Are we vulnerable with each other? Are we open to hear from the Spirit as we speak into each other's lives? The second thing that, uh, the second name that we're baptized into is the name of the Son. Matthew makes it super clear throughout his gospel that Jesus is making a specific claim that the kingdom of God is near, is coming, is inbreaking through and in him. And at the very end, of course, we read this earlier. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, the kingdom of God is here and I am the king. I'm this king that comes to do that. Bring this kingdom here. But not only that, Jesus says, I'm inviting you into my kingdom. And if we become part of Jesus' kingdom, well, that makes us his subjects or his servants. But Jesus has a very specific idea of what it means to be a subject in his kingdom. In the book of Mark, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. They're having this argument about who's the greatest among them. And Jesus confronts them and says this in, in Mark chapter uh, 10, verses, uh, verses 42 to 45. He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. This is not so different than how authority structures work in our age and our day. We know bosses are bosses, and they act like bosses, right? They, you know, order people around, kind of take the good stuff for themselves. And yet Jesus says this, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. Why does he say this? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, if you're part of my kingdom, you got to be like me. I'm your king. And I didn't come to lord it over people. I didn't come to put myself at the top of the ladder. I came to serve. And so the second thing that we can know is that when we're being baptized into the name of the Son, it's a call to a servant lifestyle. We can say that we're a family and we're also called to be servants. Serving in essence means sacrificially meeting the needs of others. And I think serving is probably one of the best apologetics or one of the best arguments we have for our faith. And I'll give you two examples of that. Yesterday morning, uh, Dave, who's coming on staff in January to help lead youth, uh, and his wife Leah had some friends who they, they aren't Christians, don't know Jesus at all. In fact, as far as I know, might actually be antagonistic towards the idea of Jesus. And they ended up just moving. And, and Dave kind of texts out, bombs everyone like he knows. Hey, come over. We have these friends who need help moving. And so uh, a few people kind of went over there 
And it was horrible. Like it was pouring rain. It was probably like the worst rainy day of the year. And, uh, and they're just moving from like one house into their co-op to another house. And it was so beautiful for me. I showed up and, and there's all these people from our church family. And uh, this couple, they didn't know them at all. Had no concept of who they were. They only knew that they needed help and that Dave had called them to it. And they showed up and they spent all morning moving furniture and boxes back and forth in the rain, getting soaking wet, freezing cold. Now, when that couple asks Dave and Leo, why did these people show up? What can they tell them? Guess what? And they, they showed up because they are so excited about how Jesus showed up for them. And the, the little bit of help that they were able to give is just a mere reflection of what they have received from Jesus. Actions that demand a gospel response. So serving actually enables us to tell people what Jesus has done. Because this isn't normal, right? Normal people don't just show up on a miserable day to help someone that they don't know. I mean, I, I would do that for my family. I would do that for my friends. But without Jesus, I'm not doing it for someone I don't know. But because I know that Jesus pursued me when I was estranged from him, that he laid down his life for me, it now compels me as a new person to be like him. The second way I think this happens is when we serve those who don't deserve it. So first, serve those who we don't know. Second, serve those who don't deserve it. We talk a little bit about this in, in our regular gathering times, but we talk about gospel tipping. The idea that you go to a restaurant and someone gives you terrible service, and yet rather than taking money off the tip that you would normally give them, you give extra money. Why do you do that? Because it's a picture of the grace that God has given you. And this can happen in all different forms. You might have a coworker who treats you like garbage and that you go out of your way time and time again to be a blessing, to serve, to help, to love. Not because they deserve it, but because you know that God gave you grace when you didn't deserve it. That can't happen on our own though. I mean, ultimately it will bear us down. The only way that happens is when we live out of a recognition of who we are now in Jesus. The last thing I would say about serving before I kind of move on to our final identity is that we, we notice here in, the, in, in Acts that the church didn't simply serve each other, but they also shared their needs with each other. It says uh, that the church was selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Now, how did they know those needs? Well, they knew those needs because those people actually invited them into their lives to know their needs. And so for us, understanding our servant identity isn't simply something that we are empowered to do to other people, but it's actually something that we are invited to be vulnerable to allow other people to do for us. Um, we're... I would say this generally, this might not be true for you, but in general, most of us are, are fairly uh, prideful people. And I mean this in the sense that we don't like to look vulnerable. We don't like to look needy. We don't like people to see our junk and see where we're insufficient. So we object to people helping us because of that. We, we don't want to ask for help. But I, I want to pose this question for you. How do you expect to humble yourself in order for God to forgive you of the extreme amount that he does if you can't simply ask for someone to help you in the little things? I mean, how can we humble ourselves on such a grand scale if we can't simply humble ourselves enough to just ask someone for help when we need it? You see, the reality is, is when we understand the grace that has been given to us through Jesus. It doesn't simply change us and empower us to do things to others, but it actually empowers us to, to boldly share our needs because we recognize our insufficiency. That's what we've been talking about in this whole Sermon on the Mount bit. 
starts off with that saying in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand their need. Our new identity is one that understands the grace that we have received from Jesus. And because of that, we can ask for help without shame. We can declare our insufficiency. We can invite people into our lives. But that's really hard. It's not something that comes easily, and it's not something that comes at all if you haven't truly changed inside. The final name that we're baptized into is the name of the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke again. We'll jump back into the book of John. In John chapter 20, again, kind of at the end of his time, he's, he's sharing uh, with his, his followers. And he says this in John chapter 20, verses 21 and 23. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying, as I have been sent in the power of the Spirit, now I am giving you the Spirit and sending you. Well, I think there's a couple of things that we should note about how Jesus was sent, about how his sending looked. The first thing I I think we need to note as we think through what it means to be sent in the power of the Spirit is Jesus' obedience. Jesus' obedience. Jesus was willing to obey the Father even unto death. At the very end of his life, we read that he's in this garden, he's praying, and he knows that he's about to go to the cross. He knows the pain and the suffering, the weight of the shame that he's about to bear. And he says, Father, take this cup from me. Essentially, don't ask me to do this. But he finishes off his prayer saying, not my will, but yours be done. The Spirit is given to us to transform our hearts so that even when things are difficult, even when things are unfavorable to us, that we can obey. And obedience is a mark of the Spirit's work in our life. The second thing I would note about Jesus is his sacrifice. Jesus was willing to lay down his life for the sake of his mission. Jesus went to the cross. Now, this is a challenge for us because if we're being really honest, most of us aren't even willing to lay down our time for the sake of the mission. Most of us aren't even willing to lay down, you know, a couple hours a week to be regularly invested in the church family. You know, when we look at Jesus, his entire life was one of sacrifice, was one of giving up, was one of saying, not my will, but yours be done, and living that out in the ways that he interacted with people. I often am challenged with this, and this is an area where the Spirit is still growing in my life. Um, if you ever want to see me at some of my worst moments, just knock on my door when I don't expect you. <laughs> my house is my castle, my sanctuary, my private place. And so I try and be generous in like allowing people to come into our space. Uh, you hear, hear the language, right? I'm still thinking about all this stuff as mine. You know, there's this part of my, my heart that hasn't yet said, hey, God has given this to me as a gift. It's actually his to be used for his purposes. I'm holding on to this. But, but yeah, if you ever want to see Andrew at his worst point, just knock on the door when I'm not expecting you and, and stick around for a while. <laughs> you might see me slowly kind of start doing laundry pull out the vacuum cleaner, <laughs> start to hint that, hey, I was in the middle of something before you got here and I wasn't expecting you, so you should probably leave. Or just look at the angry glares that my wife gives me. <laughs> no, but here's the reality of what's going on there. There's still parts of my life that I'm holding back. And the same might be for you. Maybe it's your time. You've said, hey, God, you get this much. Maybe it's your money. God, you can have this much but the rest is mine. When we talk about even giving, tithing, we like this idea uh, as a church people of this, uh, you know, kind of the, the amount that we should give is about 10% of our, our income. Here's the reality though. In the New Testament, they never affirm any kind of idea of 10%. 
we see that Jesus proclaims that everything that we have is his. And that's why this church is saying, hey, there's a need. I have the means to meet that need. I'm gonna need it. I'm going to meet it. I'm gonna sacrifice what I have for those other people. When the spirit comes into our lives, he starts to open up our hearts, open up our hands. And our time becomes not our own. It becomes something that we're willing to sacrifice. Our money is not our own. Our possessions aren't our own. Third thing I want to note about the way that Jesus was sent is his motivation. Jesus' ultimate motivation was to glorify the Father and seek and save those who were lost. Now, as human beings, we have a lot of motivations. Yesterday, when I went and helped uh, out with the move, there was some motivation of being like, oh yeah, I'm preaching tomorrow. I probably need to practice what I preach. <laughs> there's those moments, right, where there's kind of this like guilt and shame complex. And, and I had to work through that and ask the Spirit to, to actually like speak into my heart and say, hey, this isn't about me proving myself to the other people. This is about me listening to you and being reminded of what you've done. And so uh, Jesus' motivation was fully about the, fa- the Father's glory. He wanted uh, everyone to know how good God was. For us, there's lots of different competing motivations. Maybe some of you are here today, and your motivation is that someone invited you, and you feel guilty, so you felt like you had to come. Maybe your motivation for giving is, again, sort of that you know it's the right thing to do, and you want to do the right thing. But Jesus' motivation was ultimately love for, for God, love for his father and a desire to see his father glorified. It defined everything that he did. The last piece that I wanna share with us is that Jesus came, uh, and how Jesus came is his blessing. Jesus' death and resurrection was a blessing to all. It was a form of common grace. It was something that was an invitation for everyone to participate in. And the final thing that I want to note for us is we are sent in the power of the spirit is that we should be sent in such a way that people experience the blessing of God in their lives. Here's the reality. This is a lot. And if you're here today and and what you hear me saying is, here's a list of all the things that you need to do. I want to say that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying these are examples of how your life looks when you start to live out of this new identity. And the reason that we're given the Spirit is because we physically cannot do this on our own. Our motivations are constantly in battle. Our desire to live sacrificially is constantly being tested. Our obedience to God constantly falters, and oftentimes we become hoarders rather than blessers. But there's good news because we're baptized in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And when we're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, we are sent not by ourselves, but sent in his power because he can do what we cannot. But we have to actually rely on him. There's a couple of ways that we choose not to. The first is that we often don't live in such a way that demands, that needs the Spirit. I remember as a a kid, um, I was going on this uh, mission trip with my church youth group, and we had to raise all this money, and I had a good job. And so I was just like, you know what? Yeah, I, I mean, I could trust God to take care of this for me, but, you know, I work, so I'm probably just gonna pay for it myself, and I did, and it was fine. And I never got to see God provide in that way. And for some of us, for maybe many of us, we're living on the edge of comfort. You know, we we give a little, we push ourselves a little, and yet it's never enough to really have to rely on the Spirit. One of the things, that, the probably the toughest and best things that I ever had to do was move back to Victoria. And Shannon and I, we didn't have many connections left here. We didn't have jobs set up. We didn't know where we were going to live, any of that stuff. And we just had to kind of step out in faith. And it was amazing how God provided for us. 
in ways that we could not have ever imagined. And we would have never been able to experience the Spirit's work in our lives if we had never taken that step of faith where this would not have happened if he had not showed up. For some of you today, the question I I wanna challenge you with is to ask yourselves, have you truly ever done something that requires the spirit to show up? The second thing that we often do that can limit the spirit is that we try and do mission without him. And this is also very common. As a church family, we tend to be a very doer church. You know, we tend to emphasize action. And so you hear us talk a lot about it. And early on, one of the things that, that Chris has kind of related to me that he noted is that we emphasize people doing, 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 and, and we forgot to remind them of doing all this stuff needs to come not from themselves, but from the spirit. And so people were exhausted. They were burnt out. I hear this today, if, if you're doing mission, if you're doing stuff and you're not doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to hit this point where you're exhausted and you have nothing left to give because you've been relying on your own strength and your own strength is limited. But there's this beautiful reality that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now resides in you and wants to empower you to go far further than you ever could on your own. And so when we talk about this changed identity, when we talk about what it means to be the church, church is a gathered people who have been transformed by the gospel, been called out from the world, gathered into the family of God. And ultimately, when this family lives out their identity as a family of missionary servants, something happens. In Acts, Luke records, said, and day by day they attended the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and listen to this, having favor with all people, having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You may remember a few months ago when we started our series, Revive Us Again, we talked about this word gospel saturation. What is the church? The church is a group of people gathered together to give a picture of what the gospel looks like when it takes root in our lives, what the kingdom of God looks like when its citizens live under the rule of their king, what the family of God looks like when they're gathered together, what God's people look like when they're empowered by his spirit. I'm going to invite the band to close off, uh, to come up as we close off here. What I hope you pull from this morning is an understanding that there's an invitation for you to be a transformed person. And when you live out of that transformed identity, something happens. You give a picture of what God's like. And as people get that picture of what God's like, it starts to change their hearts becomes an invitation to them. I want to finish off here with three questions to consider. If what we have talked about this morning, if this picture that we get from Acts 2 is true, then our lives should look different in such a way that people take notice. The first question I want to ask is, church, is a West Shore glad that we are here? If tomorrow morning we woke up, all the money was gone and we couldn't gather anymore, our church had to disband notice. Now I want to break it down even further. We have a a proactive mission, a, a people, a neighborhood, a space that they enter and express what it looks like to be part of the family of God. Let me ask you, if your community group ceased to exist tomorrow, would anyone notice? Would anyone miss it? Would anyone care? 
final question I want to ask is for each of us as individuals. If you move from your house, if you left your job, would your coworkers be sad? If you reach any of those questions and you're not sure what the answer is, I want to submit to you that this morning we have a challenge to start living out our identities as a new creation people. Maybe for you, the first step is that you need to say, hey, I haven't been living out family well. I need to get invested in other people's lives. Maybe for you, you just recognize that And I haven't been in place for a long time and no one even knows anything about Jesus. And you start asking your questions. Am I actually living out of the power of the Spirit? Am I doing things that I have to rely on Him for? Maybe you just need to ask yourself, where is that person who I need to serve in such a way that it gives a picture? In a moment, we're going to take communion together. So we take the cracker. It's a reminder of what Jesus is like a God who went to the cross for us. So we dip it into the juice or the wine, reminded of a God who shed his blood sacrificially for us, who pursued us as a missionary God, and by whom his blood, we are now invited into his family. And so today I want to invite you to be a picture as the church in 2019 of a new creation people. Let me pray for us. Father, I confess that so often I live out of my own strength and not your spirit. So often I look to myself and my deeds and forget to look to you and yours. So often I compartmentalize in such a way that I can lift myself up and when I fail, come to despair because I have not properly been relying on you. And so Father, I just ask that this morning as we take communion together and we're reminded of what kind of God you are, that you would stir our hearts, that you would remind us of our identity in you and that this week and this year that you would empower us to live in light of that. Amen.